right. Amen. Thank you very much. If you would turn to Acts chapter 11, one way or the other, whatever kind of Bible you might be using, Acts chapter 11. We continue our trek through Acts. Indeed, it's interesting. We um, we live in a challenging world in all kinds of ways. And for those of you who follow football, uh, you know that there was a professional football player who was um, went through a very scary thing on Monday Night Football this past week, where he had a heart attack on the field, and they had to resuscitate him on the field and take him to the hospital where he's been in critical condition and slowly making some improvement. But part of the discussion after that happened was um, whether or not football is too risky. And some have even compared you know, professional football to uh, the gladiator sports in Rome. And so it raises the question uh, of risk. And sometimes we ask the question this way, we ask the question, is there a risk? And that's the wrong question because getting on the freeway is a risk. There are all kinds of things. Just about everything in life has some kind of risk involved. So the question is, more uh, aptly put, is the risk worth it? Or is the risk reasonable? There's all kinds of ways to maybe phrase that. And so especially when you think about what's happening in our country where uh, Christianity is becoming less and less acceptable, especially certain stances, Christian stances on certain issues, becoming less and less acceptable, acceptable, and we're beginning to get those kinds of responses to our Christian positions, how dare you kind of challenges to our positions, how dare you Uh, tell me I can't be what I want to be. How dare you tell me I can't do what I want to do? And so we're living more and more in a culture that challenges us in all kinds of ways. And therefore, we need to be strengthened um, through the word of God in light of that. It's interesting in reading uh, what Calvin had to say on Acts chapter 11, he mentions the fact that we all have slippery minds he says, that's why we need the continual preaching of the word, because we have slippery minds. We lose sight of the truth, and therefore we need to be constantly reminded of the truth of God's word. And so read with me Acts chapter 11. In verse 1 it says, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me, and when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. 
But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began to speak, began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarshish to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indica indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. This is the word of God. So what I want to encourage us to think about today in light of this chapter is the fact that as Christians we are going to be challenged. It mentions in verse 26 that the disciples in Antioch were first called Christians. And in this chapter we get all kinds of references to what it really means to be a Christian, different ways in which uh, we can talk about being a Christian, which helps us to understand what the implications of being called a Christian is and should be. But we also see in this chapter how Peter is challenged, and the Christians are challenged. Peter's challenged by a, 
a certain segment of the church um, with regard to his going to a Gentile's house. But we also see reference that believers were being scattered through persecution, which means they were being challenged from the outside. So Peter's being challenged from inside the church. Uh, the believers in general in Jerusalem are being challenged from outside the church. And that's still going on today. There's all kinds of debates within the church in our country, as well as uh, challenges from the outside as well. And so I just like to um, highlight some of these challenges, remind us of the kinds of things we shouldn't be surprised um, we're being challenged with, and to encourage us to remain faithful in our hearts and in our lives. And so the first thing is challenges to the word of God. In verse 1, it tells us that um, the apostles and brethren um, in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Now, that's a reference to what happened in the prior chapter with Peter going to the house of Cornelius, preaching the gospel. Holy Spirit falls on them. They're saved and they're baptized. And Christians back in Judea and Jerusalem hear about that. But the point that I want to make is the, the way their saving faith is referred to is they receive the word of God. That's another way of talking about saving faith. It's a faith that receives the word of God. Now, now it certainly refers to the gospel. It certainly refers to the fact that they received the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he did, his resurrection from the dead, his lordship over all things. But it also refers to the fact that once we've trusted in Christ, we not only believe the word about the gospel, but we believe the whole word of God. The word of God becomes something that we receive. Um, the um, catechism, as referred to earlier, in one part of it, uh, the Westminster Catechism, talks about saving faith. And it says this, By this faith a Christian, meaning by saving faith a Christian, believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. So saving faith certainly embraces the word about Christ, but it embraces all the Bible says in principle. doesn't mean we don't wrestle with certain things, but it means in principle, uh, I've been given a heart to embrace all that the word of God says, and I have to flesh that out throughout the remainder of my life. But in our day and time, there are all kinds of challenges to what the word of God says, and I'll just list a few of these evolution, abortion, transgenderism, LGBTQIA agendas, uh, women pastors, critical race theory, Marxism, egalitarianism, tyranny, uh, just to name a few. There are all kinds of out there challenges to what the word says. And we shouldn't be surprised that the word of God is challenged because it was the strategy of Satan from the very beginning, right? Doesn't he go to Eve and says, you know, did God tell you that you couldn't eat from any of the trees? And she said, no, he just said we couldn't eat from this tree and because we'll die if we do. And he says, oh, you won't die. And so it's been the enemy's strategy from the beginning to cast doubt upon the word of God, to cause us to think that the word of God is outdated or unreasonable or unloving or narrow-minded, 
uh, or anything else that you can think of. It's, that, it's the strategy of the word of, of the enemy to uh, undermine God's word in our lives. And that's why that's going to be a big challenge for us. And even within the church, you can see the evangelical church in America and some sectors drifting further left, beginning to embrace uh, things that they weren't embracing before because of the pressures of our culture. I've mentioned before um, a message by Frank Peretti, which he calls the chair, and he demonstrates the importance of having a fixed point of reference where he sets a chair up on stage, and he talks about imagining yourself being in a dark room, pitch black room, and you're just trying to get your bearing on where things are. And he says, if you have a fixed point of reference, then you can explore the room and still have a sense of knowing where you are. But if that chair is movable or non-existent, you're in a pitch black room and you're constantly confused. You may not think you're confused, but you are. And that's what it means, or that's what it, it's a good picture of what it's like to live in a world where we've basically said there is no God, there is no truth, there is no right and wrong, there is no life after death. It's just all about whatever you feel, think, or want to do. And you might think you've got it all down pat, but based on what? Based on what fixed point of reference? And so the Bible is our fixed point of reference that we desperately need in trying to deal with all these various issues. That's why it says in Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled or firmly fixed in heaven. The psalmist goes on to say in verse 92, If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. If I didn't have that fixed point of reference in my life, in light of all the things I was going through, I would have died. I would have fallen apart. I would have gone crazy. We need that fixed point of reference in our lives. Secondly, second challenge that we see is a challenge to justification by faith alone. Um, This is happening in our day and time with a lot of the uh, social justice talk. There are some Christians that are beginning to talk in such a way that they're implying that unless you adopt a certain perspective on social justice, you're not really preaching the gospel, you're not really believing the gospel, you're not maybe really a Christian if you don't embrace certain kinds of perspectives on Uh, race relations and social justice issues. Well, in verses 2 through 16, there's a challenge to justification by faith in that there were people in the church in Jerusalem who found out about what happened when Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius. And it says in verse 2, those who were circumcised took issue with him. Now, who knows what was behind that word, those two words, took issue. Later on in the passage, it says they quieted down after they heard the story, which means they must have been really exercised about this. How dare you go into a Gentile's home? And so Peter's having to face this, and we know later on Paul had to face the whole issue of the Judaizers who were trying to add on certain Jewish practices to believing in Christ, and that seems to be at least part of what's going on here as well. But the the issue was 
um, even the Jewish Christians were struggling with the idea that God actually intended to include the Gentiles in his salvation. Uh, Calvin says the Jews accounted it as a monster that the Gentiles should be gathered unto them. A monster is something you run away from. A monster is something you don't want to have anything to do with. And even in our day and time, there are those with pasts that we deem irredeemable. The Jews at that time, many of them considered the Gentiles irredeemable. In our day and time, we might put those in that category like pedophiles or mass murderers or drug dealers or anti-vaxxers. <laughs> now, I'll say that in jest, but there was a study in the American Journal of Medicine that just came out recently where there was a study that connected those um, who did not accept the vaccine to being poor drivers. But this is what they said. They said, people who refuse to get the COVID vaccine are far more likely to get into a traffic crash requiring hospitalization. A recently published study finds, um, let's see, it says, adding evidence, adding evidence, must be other evidence, adding evidence to the theory that anti-vaxxers often demonstrate other kinds of dangerous antisocial behavior. I want to relate that to being a Christian. That's why they oppose Christianity. They find Christianity as being dangerous, antisocial behavior. And so we have to realize that um, that's the challenge of the culture that we live in more and more. But I especially wanted to make the point that there are different groups that we tend to put people in or we find people in, and we say that group is irredeemable. That group should just be done away with. And justification by faith alone is all about uh, getting rid of that idea that there's anything in our past that can't be cleansed through the blood of Christ. Interestingly enough, there was a letter to an an editor in which someone asked the question, is it wrong to reject a potential spouse because of a gross sexual sin in their past life before they became a Christian? And they go on to say, you know, what about the icky feeling? You know, is it a good reason to say no because you have this icky feeling? Well, he goes on to say, you know, the ick factor probably isn't enough to keep you from marrying them. There are other considerations He doesn't go on to say the kind of thing that I think we should say as Christians is, what about the doctrine of justification by faith alone? What about the fact that we believe that people can be truly forgiven no matter what their sin is? What about the fact that we really believe that Jesus is a true Savior for sinners? And that when we say that we're forgiven, we really are. And when we say that in Christ we can overcome our past and be different, we really mean that. And so the doctrine of justification by faith alone is crucial to our lives because the Bible tells us that God justifies the ungodly. What does it say in Romans 4? But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It's very easy to read that and say, blessed are those whose um, somewhat lawless deeds and little lawless deeds and not so bad lawless deeds have been forgiven. But what about people we think are real sinners? Like us, yes. Real sinners. The good news is Jesus is a real savior for real sinners. And the challenge is in various ways to hang on to that. Hang on to that when you have your worst day. Hang on to that when you have your best day. And when other people do as well. So the challenge to justification by faith alone and not adding social justice or works of any kind to it. Uh, thirdly, uh, the challenge to true faith. In verse 17, it says, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift, gift as he gave to us, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That phrase, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Jan just told me a little story about uh, a woman she encountered recently who was actually a Bible study leader. And in the course of their interaction, um, this Bible study leader, this little petite woman, um, used some profanity and said, I just love to cuss. And kind of went on about her way. Now, I, I reflect on things like that. When, especially when I hear Christians say those things, I reflect on that and say, okay, does that mean that she thinks God is indifferent to those kinds of things, that he doesn't really care one way or the other, you know, whether or not we use words that we consider curse words. Is that her position? Or is the position that she's indifferent to what God thinks about that because she likes to do it? And that's my real issue here in bringing it up is um, we may be wrong on what God is pleased or isn't pleased with, but we should not be wrong on whether or not we want to please God. And we need to pray for grace that we do that because true faith is a believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ highlights his saviorhood. Jesus highlights his humanity. Lord highlights that he is Lord. He's in charge. He tells us what to do, that we're to live to please him. We're accepted because he lived to please the Father. But we're to live to please him because he is Lord. So it, it both, you know, it all goes together. And so we have to be careful in our day because there, there, there are people who believe that they can take the name of Jesus and not embrace the word of Jesus. They can take the name of Jesus and not be concerned about surrendering to what the word of God says it looks like to follow Jesus. And I, I need to be concerned about that when I see that in my own heart. I need to be concerned about that when we see that in our culture. Because true faith receives and rests on Jesus, all that he is, both Savior and Lord, and gladly embraces him in that way. Um, Calvin again says, It is the force and nature of true faith that it restores men to God's government over their lives. True faith causes us to surrender to his government. 
to say, Lord, help me to please you. Help, I've been living my life to please myself. Help me now to live to please you, not to earn my salvation, but to enjoy it, to enjoy my salvation, to enjoy you. And so I thought of C.S. Lewis, who talks about his own conversion, where he talks about being in his room and finally just getting on his knees and surrendering to God. Now, at that point, he would say he wasn't a Christian, but he moved toward Christianity, and he got to the point where he could say, talking about Jesus, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So, When Christ says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, he doesn't say, and you can do that, you can come to me without acknowledging who I am. We still must embrace him for who he is and he's both Lord and Savior. And that's not a bad thing because we don't know how to make ourselves happy. We only know how to run after things that do not satisfy. He promises to fulfill our heart's desire even as we surrender our lives to him. That's why, as we looked at during Christmas time in Luke chapter 2, the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The good news is, uh, it says the believers in this chapter preached the Lord Jesus. They did They didn't simply say, Jesus will save you. They said, Jesus is Lord, and he will save you if you embrace him, if you embrace his lordship. He will forgive you, and he will make you fully and forever happy. And this is closely related to the other way we see faith being talked about in this chapter in verse 18, which is the idea of the challenge to true repentance. Uh, I mentioned before a football player called Joe Theismann, who was going through a divorce, who had um, publicly talked about his infidelity. And he says the reason why he was doing what he was doing was God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. And we talked about happiness last week. It is true, God wants his creatures to be happy. But that does not mean that we reject what he says because happiness cannot be found in rejecting God and what he says. And that's what Joe Theismann was doing. And that, again, is where the idea of repentance comes in. It says in verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now, it highlights the fact that the reason why they believed was because God granted them faith. God granted them a saving response to the gospel and his sovereign grace. That's why they believed. But the way that that, um, grace is talked about and the way faith is talked about here is in terms of repentance that leads to life. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life. I'm running away from God because I want my happiness to I turn around and I run toward God because I want my happiness. I've just understood, I've come to see by God's grace that fullness of joy and happiness is found in God through Jesus because I'm a sinner and I need to be reconciled to him. Obviously, 
there are all kinds of people in church history like Augustine who had great wrestlings. And if you read the story of Augustine, you find out that the real hitch for him was uh, sexual issues in his life, which is a hitch for a lot of people in our culture because we, we're getting back to the, the time like in the first century where uh, sexual standards have been have been just so undermined and are so relative that a lot of people are becoming bound by them again or more bound by them. But he was bound uh, to this concubine that he had for 15 years. His mother comes and says, I want you to get married. And so uh, she gets him to send his concubine back to Africa. And yet he can't live without a woman. So he finds another mistress. And in all of that, he's hearing preaching. He's listening to Ambrose. And Ambrose, he's fascinated with how um, eloquent Ambrose is, but also he's fascinated with the arguments that Ambrose makes with regard to finding your enjoyment in God. And he begins to realize, yeah, I think that's really where my enjoyment is, but I can't let go of this. Well, obviously, most of us have heard the story about him hearing a little child saying, take up and read, take up and read. And he finds uh, the epistles of Paul that he had a copy of, and he's, he basically does this. He says, whatever my eyes fall on, I'm going to read and see what God has for me. And the verse that he read is out of uh, Romans, where it says, not in reveling in drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries, rather arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. And it was at that point, God saved him. God opened his eyes and God set him free. And he repented of seeking his happiness and joy in immorality. And someone has said, uh, this is his testimony in the confessions, is Augustine's own theological working out of this triumph of joy in God over joy in sex. And so the reality is, All of us have idols. For Augustine, that was Augustine's big idol. All of us have other idols, maybe. Could be money, could be people, could be certain career path, all kinds of things. And that's why it says in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about faith this way when he talks about how they receive the gospel and how they receive them. He says, how you turn to God from idols, things that you look to for help and happiness apart from God, whatever that might be. How you turn to God from idols, which is repentance, to serve a living and true God, to serve him in such a way that you seek your joy and happiness in him and to wait for his son from heaven. And so Acts chapter 11 is highlighting the fact that True faith is going to be challenged in an ungodly culture. True repentance is going to be challenged from outside and from inside the church. We should not be surprised if on both fronts there are challenges to those things uh, in all kinds of ways. Fifthly, the challenge to endure. Um, Verses 19 through 26. Um, most of us have heard the term uh, deconstruction. Uh, Ex-evangelicals, uh, people who were raised in the church or were 
practicing Christians, professing Christians for a while, and then they deconstruct. Uh, some of them deconstruct by trying to get rid of things that they believe they were taught but aren't really in the Bible. Others are deconstructing in terms of they're just casting off Christianity, like Josh Harris or Abraham Piper, others who deconstruct to the point of just turning their back on uh, their Christian um, teaching that they've had and at one point embraced in some sense. To me, it's interesting in this part of the chapter in 19 through 26, it says they heard about um, what was going on in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem sent uh, Barnabas to find out what was going on, to see if it was really uh, a work of God. And it says in verse 23, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced. And then it says he taught them, once saved, always saved, you're good. That's not what it says. It says, and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Think about that. Now, did Barnabas not believe in once saved, always saved? He did, I'm sure. But he didn't want to communicate to them, at least based on what the Holy Spirit preserves for us. Uh, What he wants to know that he told them was, you need to resolve to hold on to your faith. Why? Because he knew their faith was going to be tested. And so you can have both once saved, always saved, the perseverance of the saints. Um, Once you've been truly born again by the grace of God, you're not going to be unborn or anything like that. You can have that reality and the reality that the New Testament tells us over and over in various ways that your faith will be tested You need to be prepared for it, and you need to be ready for the challenges, and you need to endure. And so uh, in all kinds of ways, we're encouraged to remember those kinds of things. Uh, Again, that's why Calvin could talk about our slippery minds and how we need the continual preaching of the Word of God because he talks about slippery minds uh, in this context. He says, with so many and such strong adversaries. Our minds are so slippery slippery, unless every man arm himself diligently, it will by and by fall away. And the it is true doctrine. The truth will fall away. And then right after that, he makes this comment. He says, it is no marvel if scarce one of 10 of those who profess faith do stand unto the end. You hear what he's saying? His observation at that time, based on what he saw happening around him, was only one out of ten that professed Christ were enduring to the end. They were walking away in droves. And in a culture where it's more costly to be a Christian, where it's more risky to be a Christian, more and more people will compromise and walk away from the true faith. And we need to pray that God would give us grace like he gave to people like Richard Wormbrand, who uh, began uh, Voice of the Martyrs and who was an atheist, a Jewish atheist, and got saved through the testimony of a carpenter and became a Lutheran pastor and then was arrested 
for his preaching and spent 14 years in prison, suffering horrific tortures and brutality. For three years, he was kept in solitary confinement in a cell 30 feet below the ground. Um, He was forced to sit erect with his eyes wide open and listen over and over to the words, communism is good, Christianity is stupid, give up. How dare you? What we're saying to you is good. Christianity is stupid. Give up. That is the enemy of our souls speaking through the world that he rules over in a sense. And that voice is constant, but in some periods of time, in some places, it becomes louder and louder. And in our country, it's becoming louder and louder. And we need to pray for grace to remain faithful. In fact, I pray every day, help me to be a faithful witness even to the end. Grant me grace to suffer for the gospel. Grant me grace to suffer in doing what is right. I pray that because I will not be faithful unless God gives me grace. Because I know myself and I am naturally a coward. I need the grace of God. I need the grace of God to be faithful. And we need to pray that God would give us that grace. In Matthew 10 Verse 16, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. In verse 22, he says, You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who is endured to the end who will be saved. And so we just have to recognize that our faith is going to be tested. It may be tested more than ever before, depending on how things go in our country. I'm praying for revival. Hope God sends it, but he may not. He may Continue to give us over to our sins, and we'll see what happens then. But we need to pray that we would be faithful to endure in face of those challenges. And then finally, there will be the challenge to love truly in the way that God calls us to. Um, in our day and time, the motto sexually is love is love. And love is love means it doesn't matter who the... The two people are in this sexual relationship. It's okay because love is love. As long as you have that feeling, ever to find that feeling, it is okay. Well, in the last part of the chapter, uh, it talks about the believers in Antioch giving money to support the believers in Jerusalem. And in our day and time, part of the challenge to true love is love is love. But the other part of the challenge is simply the reality that loving like God calls us to love is loving those that aren't like us. It's loving our enemies. And so what do we do with the people that are saying love is love and we disagree? What do we do with the people that are yelling in our face, how dare you? And they're our enemies. What do we do with them? How do we respond? How are we being challenged at that point? Well, in that point, we're being challenged to love them where they are. And so the issue at the very end is the reality that the Gentiles knew how the Jews felt about them. The Gentiles knew that the Jews saw them as dogs. The Gentiles knew that the Jews looked at them and had this ick factor and didn't want to have anything to do with them. 
The Gentiles knew that about the Jewish people, but the grace of God changed them. The grace of God made them want to love those who were their natural enemies by the supernatural grace of God. And so we just have to remember that we're going to be challenged to love people that are hard to love, to love our enemies. But that's what saving faith does. A great example of that is Elizabeth Elliot. You remember Jim Elliot and the other four men who went to Ecuador, tried to reach this very hostile uh, group of uh, Indian, this Indian tribe, and they were speared to death. You can see their story in the movie, The End of the Spear. And not long after that happened, after Elizabeth Elliot um, lost her husband to these, this tribe, she continued ministering to uh, another tribe in that area in Ecuador. And then after there began to be some connections with some of the women from that hostile tribe, she learned the language, their language, and she went back to that tribe and spent two years with that tribe, ministering to the tribe that killed her husband. And she brought her 10-month-old daughter with her. She said, that was the really hard thing for me, was to bring my child back with me to the very tribe that murdered my husband. What if they murdered me and took my child? But she knew it was what God wanted her to do, and she certainly knew that God wanted her to love her enemies. It says in Luke 6:27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. He goes on to say our Lord does, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. For be merciful just as your Father is merciful. It says in the Catechism, Faith receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet that saving faith is no dead faith but works by love. And it doesn't mean the kind of love that says love is love. It means the kind of love that loves its enemies, like God has loved you and me. And so we pray. We pray for grace to do these things. We pray for grace to stand up to these challenges. But I want to close with a word of encouragement here as well from a little different angle. And in verse 23 it says, When Barnabas arrived, he witnessed the grace of God. Um, all of us could probably look at that list and think about ways in which we're thankful that we feel like we're pretty strong in those areas. And we might, if we're aware, uh, recognize some of our weakness in terms of loving, in terms of trusting, in terms of repenting, in, in all kinds of ways. And we have to remember that the grace of God in us um, is something we, we can rejoice in no matter whether it's small or great. And there was something I ran across uh, this week, and I imagine Mike and Dana are probably familiar with this, with this because it comes from 
um, a book by Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. But there was a guy who was talking about that book and what uh, Jeremiah Burroughs says in the book. And he highlights uh, an interesting connection in the word in Genesis 18.12. In that chapter, it's talking about how God is coming to Abraham and telling him that, you know, in the next year, Sarah's going to have a baby. And Sarah laughs. And it says um, that she says, according to one translation, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall, shall I have pleasure? Shall I have the pleasure of giving birth to a child? And Jeremiah Burroughs notices in 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6 that, that um, Sarah is upheld as an example of a godly woman who responded properly to her husband. And it says, uh, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And he highlights the fact that the only place in scripture where Sarah calls Abraham Lord is in the context of her laughing at what God had promised it's the only time. So Peter must have been referring to that when he talked about Sarah and upheld her as a testimony of a godly woman. But he makes this application for us. He says, notice that the Holy Spirit only cited this one good word, one good word um, out of all the other words, Lord, and you got 13 other words or so. He says, The Holy Spirit cited this one good word in Peter and quoting the passage from Genesis and passed over the rest of Sarah's sinful speech. Burroughs comments, if there is an abundance of evil and a little good, God rather passes by the evil and takes notice of the good. Thus, how graciously God deals with us. If there is but one good word among a great many ill, What an interpretation God makes. The reason Burroughs gives for this is he quotes 1 Corinthians 13, 5 and says, God is love and love thinketh no evil. He goes on to say, love is of that nature that if 10 interpretations may be made of a thing, nine of them bad and one good, love will take that which is good and leave the other nine. He's talking about interpreting people and situations and what people did or didn't do and those kinds of things. The person commenting on that said, Sarah spoke 14 words, 13 bad and one good. God passed over the 13 and emphasized the one. When God retells the story, he mentions her faith and leaves out her doubt. What an interpretation God makes indeed. He's just talking about the grace of God. When we stand before God on Judgment Day, none of us will have, even as Christians, certainly as Christians, we will not have works that God says, well, that's worthy of my reward. No, he's going to have to overlook about 13 words out of 14. And even that one word was by his grace, his gracious work in our hearts. But he's going to lavish an eternity of blessings upon us. And he calls us to remember that. And I think the application is both for ourselves personally, 
that we should look for evidences of grace in our own hearts and lives and rejoice that there's any evidence of grace in our hearts and lives. We tend to focus on the negative even in our own hearts and lives. But we're also tempted to focus only on the negative in other people's hearts and lives and to assume the negative rather than to assume the positive. And if we're going to love people, if we're going to have joy, we need to have our perspective shaped by grace, shaped by God's grace. And so that's my encouragement, that even as we think about the challenges that we face, that we not forget the grace of God shown us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your word that reminds us in various ways of what life is going to look like in a fallen world and how our faith will be tested. And those tests will come from without. They'll come from within the church. And those tests will come from within our own hearts. We will wrestle with our own sin and our own failure. We'll find it hard to find joy because we're so hard on ourselves and it results in us being very hard on other people. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith in your grace, shown to us through faith in your Son, and that there would be increasing joy, because the joy of the Lord is our strength, there would be increasing power to overcome the temptation not to trust, the temptation not to love, that there would be an abundance of grace, grace upon grace, to deal with the challenges that we will face in our country in the days to come. So, Father, we just pray for your encouragement. And I pray that if there's anyone here who has not embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior, pray that you would work in their hearts and that they would see you for the awesome and wonderful God and Savior that you are, that they would see you, Lord Jesus, as an awesome and wonderful and able and willing Savior, and that they would know that you are the only path of true and lasting happiness. And we will not be disappointed if we trust you and we follow you and we live to please you. If we rest all of our sin at the foot of your cross, and if we take up our cross and follow you, please strengthen us. Those of us who are already doing that, have already done that, please grant grace to those who have not yet done that. And prepare us even now as we prepare for the Lord's Supper that we would honor you, Lord Jesus, because it's only because of you that we can rejoice in the grace of God. It's all based on what you've done for us. So, Father, please be with us now as we continue to worship in this way. We thank you for your word. Help us to believe it, apply it to our lives as we move forward. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen.